Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Amen. Oh, that is kind. Man, it's been what feels like an unbelievably long time. I mean, to even, to even ask the question, how was your Christmas, seems ridiculous at this point. It feels like it was months ago, months ago, but it's really, really good to, to be back with you all again. Um, and I mean that. I know that I say that often, but really there's no, there's no way I'd rather spend a Tuesday night than to unpack the word with you all. A couple of different reminders just uh, to maybe double down on what was thrown out there for announcements. First of all, it never ceases to surprise me. I mean, I've been doing campus ministry for 26 years. Never ceases to, to amaze me and surprise me how many new people we have this spring semester. Because in my brain, fall is the new time where new students roll in. And inevitably, we'll get people who transfer into ISU or who show up in these spaces for the very first time in the spring semester. So I'm just asking you as a group, you're a welcoming crew, continue that. Be curious about each other, because you may be surprised that the people you're sitting next to uh, are actually new. <laughs> they're new to campus, or they're new to this space. Um, welcome, welcome them in. Also, I know that you're going to hear us pushing hard to sign up for small groups. Can I just encourage you to think a little differently about small groups as you sign up for them? And maybe you need to be signing up for a small group with somebody that isn't in this room. Because I can't tell you how many stories I hear of people who sit kind of like the fall semester went was rough for them. And old friendships went bad or other stuff happened in their apartment. And so, and it's like, and they need community in a bad way. A lot of people who won't show up in this space. It's just too big or it's too overwhelming. It's too intimidating. They will respond to an invitation from you to be like, hey, me and a few other people get together in this apartment once a week. Would you want to come to that? So I'm asking you not only to sign up for a small group, I'm asking you to prayerfully consider who maybe should be sitting next to you in that small group that you otherwise wouldn't have thought to invite. And lastly, I just don't want you to miss out because I could not be more excited about our winter retreat. Uh, we have a sister ministry at Purdue. We have, I mean, sister ministries all over the country, but one of them is at Purdue. And these guys who work as the staff at Purdue at a place that's called, uh, it's like Campus House Church Community, um, they have been mentors to us as a staff, and the, the ways that they think about the gospel going out on campus are just unique and beautiful, and they have been driving toward that for a very long time. Um, I spent a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, I spent about four hours with a bunch of their staff uh, talking about some of the future stuff we were dreaming about because I wanted to bounce those ideas uh, off of them just as mentors of ours. And Rob Schrumpf, who's their director, is coming here to speak for our winter retreat. He's talking about the gospel in the gray. He's got a long experience on campus at Purdue doing it. He's written a book on it. I mean, like, the dude knows his stuff, and he loves Jesus in a beautiful way. And so I'm just priming the pump because if you don't come to that retreat, I believe you're missing, you're missing out on something beautiful and special that Rob's going to lead us through, through thinking about how we can think about the gospel in our lives, on our campus, in our context. Cool? All right, that's enough plug-in stuff, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about my uh, break. Just to, I'll give you a little glimpse into at least part of, of my Christmas break right here, okay? Yeah. That's Lucy, all right? Lucy is the newest member of our family. Um, 
And I need you to understand something. We've had six kids, and my poor older kids have grown up. Uh, I mean, like the pets that they have been allowed to have are like betta fish and uh, frogs. Levi had fro- a frog for a long time. Because then all of them have begged us. Well, and I'll tell this story. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'll tell this story. Levi, when he was like three, Elijah had gotten a frog. Levi really wanted a frog. We got him a frog, and we were like, you know, you're talking to a three-year-old. You're like, what do you think its name should be? And without hesitation, he goes, Gingillo. And we were like, is that a name? Yes. And he not only did he remember it, that was the name he wanted, and that was the name of that frog for its entire life. Like, instantly, he knew that was what that frog's name was supposed to be. But, but when it came to a dog, I got to tell you, I grew up with dogs. I love dogs. They're precious to me, but they're also a lot. They're a lot of work, and we had six children. And so the, old, the, the thing that would come from me as a dad that was like, hey, when we're done cleaning up your guys' poop, we'll consider getting a dog, all right? But until that moment, and it's pretty much been until now that that's been the case. So Nora, uh, my beautiful 10-year-old daughter, has begged for two years. And when I say begged, I mean begged consistently, like as if her and a lawyer were working together, all right? She has begged for a puppy. And finally, this year before Christmas, Joe and I were talking about it, and we're like, maybe it's time. Our kids are old enough where they can kind of, they can take care of this puppy a lot. They can go on walks. They can take care of some of the potty training. And so a little bit before Christmas, we did indeed bring Lucy home. That is like the exact moment, all right? That's the moment that she saw her for the first time and grabbed her And even, I I threw one other picture in here, uh, because like last week, Nora and I were sick as dogs. I mean, we were sick, sick. And this is her and Lucy asleep on the floor in our living room. The dog bringing, it's it's a lot, I know. Uh, But the dog bringing her comfort, um, and Lucy has been hilarious, all right? Here's what I did not know that I was getting myself into. Because when I say I grew up with dogs, I grew up in the country with outside dogs, all right? They, like, kind of lived mostly in our barn, and they didn't, they didn't need to be potty trained because they really weren't in the house all that much. So I typically am a person who does a lot of research. But in getting this dog, I, like, Joe had been doing a lot of the looking and this other stuff. And so when we got the dog, I was like, okay, I'm probably doing a lot of the training. So what does, is, what is, uh, you know, potty training look like for a puppy? And little did I know that I would be, like, waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and standing. It's, like, negative 10 degrees, and I'm standing in, like, gym shorts in our backyard waiting for a puppy to poop, and I've got a baggie that I'm waiting to collect it in. And I'm like, whose idea was this? Whose idea was this? And how long is this going to take? Because in my head, I'm like, well, this, I mean, dogs are smart. Within a week, she should figure this out. And I'm talking to other friends who are like, well, it took our puppy a year. And I'm like, a year? I'm not going to stand outside like this for a year. This is ridiculous, okay? And so we followed other people's instructions, and we got, uh, uh, we have a sliding glass door in the back, and we bought this little bell on a string, and they're like, every time you take her out to go to the bathroom, hit that bell, and um, and, and it's it's like, who is being trained here, you know? Because I'm the one hitting the bell and taking the dog out and plopping it down in the yard and following it around and, and trying to be super happy when it goes to the bathroom. And, um, and this thing has no idea what's going on. It is just pleased that I'm with it, so happy to be outside or inside or whatever. It'll go to the bathroom outside and then immediately come inside and go to the bathroom again inside. I'll walk into our dining room with socks on and be like, uh, and be like, oh, that's wet. That's fun, you know? And so like, and so we're just trying to figure out how to potty train this poor puppy who loves us and wants to please us but has no idea what's going on with the world. And then a few weeks ago, maybe, maybe three weeks ago, um, 
she runs over to the sliding glass door. I'm like standing by the sink doing dishes, so the door's over here. She runs up to that door, smacks the bell, and then looks at me. (laughs) And I look at her, and I'm like, do you know? And she's just looking at me. And I slide open the door, and she runs out, and she pees, and then she runs back in and sits and waits for a treat. And I was like, is this real? Do you know? Because, like, up until that point, she was clueless. And, like, it's been hit or miss, but she absolutely knows, okay? So she runs up, and she smacks that bell and looks at you like, come on, you know? And so you open the door, and she does this. Now, she wants the treat. That's the thing that's steering all of this, you understand, okay? It's like she, she doesn't really care about where she's going to the bathroom. She is into food big time. And so the treat matters a lot to her. And so I'm, this actually does have something to do with the sermon. I want you to understand. At some point, I'll get there. <clears throat> I'm, a little, I'm a little lost in the analogy right now. But um, here's how smart this stupid dog is. She's gamed the system, and so she will, I'll, I'll be sitting in our living room, which she can't get to. It's gated off, so she can't poop on carpet. And, um, and the bell will ring, and you'll let her out, and she will run out, and she'll squat and do like two drips worth of bathroom and run back in. And I'll, I got to give her a treat. She did the right thing. So I'll give her the treat, and then I'll go back and sit down, and bing, the bell rings again. And it's like, oh, and, she, and I let her out, and she actually goes to the bathroom just a little tiny bit again. And she will farm me for treats like this. You understand? She has learned what has worked. And we have no choice but to honor the system because, I, like, we want her to go outside, all right? And so not only did she figure out what we wanted her to figure out, but she figured out how to manipulate what we wanted her to figure out to get what she wanted in that. And that actually has a lot to do with our text tonight. Because I'm going to make the argument that in this spiritual life that we live, you and I, we're kind of wired the same. Where we begin to understand how things work, and then we have a tendency to start farming the system. And I think the place that we're going to be headed tonight, you're going to understand that Jesus wants to take us there. Now, where I am headed this entire semester, we are going to start, um, we're still in a, you know, turning points, our theme for the year, but what I'll be preaching on, and other people will be preaching on too this spring, we're going to be walking through a series called Parables and Practices, all right? For the most part, we're going to be in Parables of Jesus. Uh, We're going to take three breaks through the semester, though, to talk about some spiritual formation practices, things like prayer, to figure out how we do that well together and and even give tangible ways that we're doing that as a community together. But mostly we're going to be in the the parables of Jesus. And if you don't know, if you're not familiar, parables are a tool that Jesus used when he taught. They're very, very simple stories, okay? So, like, let me give you an example of a parable. Like, let's say one of my kids, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a nap on the couch, and one of my kids comes in and, like, shakes me awake for no reason at all. They just want me to be awake, okay? And I roll over as a grumpy dad, and I'm like, hey, let me tell you a story. One time, there was a sleeping bear, and a child woke up that sleeping bear, and the bear ate the child. The end, okay? I'm not joking when I say that's kind of what Jesus' parables are like. They're, they're usually fairly short. I mean, sometimes they're a story, but they're usually fairly short. They usually have one or two main points that he's trying to get across. And I think the reason why Jesus spoke in parables and taught in parables was because there was no intellectual barrier to them. 
There was no hurdle. Like, you, you didn't have to be smart enough to understand the theological concept. It, it revealed heart issues, not brain issues. Do you understand what I'm getting at there? If someone didn't want to, to walk through Jesus' parable and get to the other side, it wasn't because they didn't have enough brain power. It was because there wasn't the will to do it. So he separated those, in essence, who wouldn't hear it, who wouldn't understand it, who wouldn't perceive it. And I can't, so here's the problem, though. What Jesus told in these parables was very, very, very easy to understand for the people that he was speaking to because culturally they were right there. Some of the parables, like the one we're going to have tonight, culturally don't transfer very well. And you'll see what I mean when we get there, okay? So first of all, I want to talk about this, that we have a God who doesn't change, all right? He stands the same as he has always been. There's Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. I just threw a bunch of it on here for you. Let me walk down the list here. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Doesn't get much simpler than that, right? I do not change. Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who, was to, who is to come, the Almighty. James 1.17 talks about how every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows, James tells us. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. John 8, 58, that's the moment where Jesus says, hey, by the way, before Abraham was, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I, I don't have time to unpack that kind of time and space, but Jesus is saying, hey, right now, I stand presently before Abraham existed. That's pretty mind-bendy. Like, I am right now standing in all time, Jesus is saying in that, which made the people around him want to kill him, by the way. And so we have this God who doesn't change. He doesn't change. The same Jehovah God who talked to Moses is the same character, is the same God. It, it may seem new to you, but he's not. He's not new and yet, Scripture does talk about him in new ways all the time. Let me give you one example. Isaiah 43, 19. See, I am doing a new thing. This is God speaking directly. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And so we have a God who is old, who doesn't change, who moves and speaks in new ways all the time. And I think you want that. I want that. I hear it all the time. I want God to move. I want God to move me. I want God to use me. I want God to speak. I want him to take me deeper. I want to understand where he's leading me. You should. You should thirst for that. I thirst for that. And God wants to move that way. So first of all, we start, before we even get to this parable that Jesus is going to teach on tonight, I want you to understand that we do have an old God who speaks and he moves in ways that are new to us. He's old. They're not new to him, but they're new to us in how he reveals himself. And the difficulty is, I think some of us have preconceived notions of how God is going to do that. That's the thing that Jesus wants to put his finger on tonight. So I'm going to jump to this text. Go ahead and read it. These are, this is, comes from Jesus's ministry. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. 
Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Fasting, if you're not familiar, is, is not eating food. It's a form of prayer. It's a spiritual discipline. And then Jesus gives two quick parables. I'm going to focus in on the second of them. They're, they mean the same thing. They're the same lesson, just with two different objects. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, I know probably nobody in the room is like a wine and wineskin expert, all right? And so that's why this one, we have to talk about it and explain it a little bit to get that simple concept that Jesus is trying to get across here. But that's what we're going to be talking on tonight, wine and wineskins. One Sabbath, again, if you aren't familiar with the Sabbath, that was a day held holy by the Jewish people. They were supposed to rest and worship one day a week on the Sabbath. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Because they were working. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the rule was meant to be a gift to you. It's not the other way around. You weren't made to be a gift to the rule. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went, and these are all connected, which is why I have all this text together. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Because in their minds, they were like, he would be doing work if he heals this man on the Sabbath, and that's against the law, the Old Testament law. Jesus said to the man with the, sh the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to, eat, to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus for that. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And I don't have time to get to all of it, but I am going to grab the specific parts that we need to hold on to tonight, the handles that are there. Um, if you don't get the whole wine, wineskins thing, this is a wineskin. And it, it's made out of animal hide. This would be the way that they stored and fermented wine, okay? And the, the thing about a fresh wineskin like this would be that it would expand because it, it wouldn't be brittle or old, you know. Um, I found uh, a couple days ago, we had a, a can full of soda in our garage, okay, uh, just, just sitting like, near my workbench, and I found that thing, it looked like a grenade had gone off, okay, <laughs> a couple days ago. When our garage, when the, when the temperatures dropped, the soda inside that thing froze, the aluminum can could not stretch, and so what did it do? Right? It blew up. 
Same concept that Jesus is talking about here. He says, when you pour new wine into a wineskin, the fermentation in the wine is going to make it expand. So if you pour it into an old wineskin that's brittle and ready to break, the wine's going to break it. Now, what's Jesus talking about? Well, look at who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying, you can't pour new things into old structures. You can't do it. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you can't fit me into the molds that you have created before. I'll break them. I'll break them every time, Jesus says. Wine and wineskins. That's the simple parable that he's trying to get across for us tonight. Now, there's a lot of talk in here about the Old Covenant. What does that mean? What does it mean, the Old Covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, God, when he came to Moses, if you'll remember, he gives him the law. You say, I don't know what the law is. Well, you remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20? You got those, you know, don't kill, don't commit adultery. We got the big ten, the Ten Commandments, all right? In the Ten Commandments, Sabbath is one of those. But the Ten Commandments aren't the only laws. There's actually 613 laws that the Jews followed from the Old Testament that they considered the law, all of them given to Moses. So, and they were a gift, by the way, from God to them, saying, here's how you should relate to me. In other words, here's how you should worship. Here's how you should relate to each other. Here's how you should deal with things like hygiene. I don't want you to be sick for no reason. And so God gives them the law. It's not a replacement for him, but it is a path for them to understand who he is. And you guys, the Jews started following that path really, really diligently and really, really well. And by the time Jesus arrives on that scene, that path is the only thing that they know. So one of those laws, and I know this is going to get super geeky and nerdy. I'm so excited about this. Some of you are going to be there with me, and some of you I don't know yet. Okay, we're going to figure that out as we go. We'll see. Um, But one of those laws, like I already talked about the Sabbath. This is part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why? Why? Because God's a rule freak? Because he obsesses about one day a week? No. The spirit of this law that's being given is that you need rest and you need worship. And so God tells the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, he says, I want this to be a part of your rhythm every week. I want it to be a part of your rhythm. And so they built that into their rhythm. It was a day of rest. It was a day of worship. How do we give our attention to God? It actually mimics God in creation. We're told in Genesis that God created for six days, and then he, he stood back from his work. Why? Because he was so exhausted he needed to rest? No. Because it added meaning to the work. For him to be able to step back from his work and look at it and say, this is good, and just enjoy it. To enjoy the creativity of his own work for the last six days. And God said, that's your rhythm too. That's the way that you should do life. Doesn't that actually kind of sound refreshing? To be able to step back and rest and worship one day a week? And so God gives that to them as a gift. Okay? And they receive it. But through the years, the religious people start having all kinds of questions. Well, wait, what does it mean to rest? My neighbor's doing this. I don't think that's rest. He's doing this. I don't think that's rest. I'm resting. Why isn't anybody else resting? So they start writing more rules. 
many, 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 many more rules. I have examples. <laughs> Volumes. They write books of rules. The Mishnah is one of those books. Let me give you a little sampling from the Mishnah, my friends. Uh, just to be clear, this is not Scripture. But all of these are about Sabbath. This one little principle of God saying, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, within the Mishnah, the Jews would have called Sabbath Shabbat. So let me read you a few excerpts of some of the rules that they added to Shabbat to make sure everybody knew what to do and how to manage it. Here we go, starting off with Shabbat 10 from the Mishnah. With regard to one who removes his fingernails with one another on Shabbat without scissors or with his teeth, and the same is true with regard to one who removes his hair with his hands, and the same is true with regard to his mustache, and the same is true with regard to his beard, and the same is true with regard to a woman who braids her hair, and the same is true with regard to one who applies blue eyeshadow, and the same is true with regard to one who applies blush. Rabbi Eliezer deems them all liable, which means they, they're guilty of sin. They, they need to give a sin offering. Um, as they performed a labor prohibited by Torah law, okay? That's just one tiny little piece about the Shabbat within the Mishnah. Here's another, all right? One who throws an object from the sea to dry land or from dry land to the sea or from the sea onto a boat or from a boat into the sea or from one boat to another is exempt. He hasn't sinned because the sea has the legal status of a Carmelite. I don't even know what that is, okay? If boats are tied together, one may carry an object from one, uh, one to the other on Shabbat. However, if they are not tied, even though they are adjacent, one may not carry from one to another. That's from Mishnah Shabbat 11. Let's jump to 12, shall we? If one wrote with liquids or with fruit juice, or if one drew letters on the road dust with scribes dust that they used to dry the ink or with any substance with which the writing does not endure, he is exempt. Similarly, if one wrote by holding the pen on the back of his hand, with his foot, with his mouth, with his elbow, if one wrote only a single letter, even if it was adjacent to other pre-existent writing, if one wrote over other writing, if one meant to write the letter het and instead wrote the two halves of the het as two instances of the letter Zion, if one wrote one letter on the ground and one on a rafter, if one wrote one letter on two walls of a house or on two parts of a writing tablet that are not read together, he's exempt right? It's fascinating. One more. And these knots, these are knots for which one is liable to bring a sin offering if one tied them on Shabbat. A camel driver's knot and a sailor's knot, both of which are meant to be permanent. And just as one is liable to bring a sin offering for tying these knots, so too he's liable to bring a sin offering for untying them. Rabbi Meyer says a principle for tying any knot that one can untie with one of his hands, one is not liable to bring a sin offering because a loose knot of that sort is not considered permanent, even if that was his intention. All right? I need you to imagine volumes of that. I read you a lot on purpose because I want you to get a sense of just how ridiculous it got. The whole exempt and liable thing is because if you sinned, you had to take in a sin offering. You had to go to the temple and provide a sin offering, which could be grain or it could be a, a drink offering or it could be an animal, all these different kinds of things. But if you, if you didn't sin then you were exempt from having to bring in anything like that. So over the years, these rabbis wrote volume after volume after volume after volume on what letters you could write together, what knots you could tie, whether you could wear blue eyeshadow and apply it, or at what point was that work? All we're doing is answering the question is, what is work? What is work? Can you imagine 
the God of the universe who was like, all I did was tell you to rest. <laughs> like, that's all I did. I said to rest and worship one day a week. And you guys have written scriptures. Like, you have written scripture after scripture after. You've, you've made all of these holy books up to try to fill in blanks. And not only that, but they used those as weapons against other people and judged you by those same standards. This is what Jesus walked into. And this is even why when Jesus was getting ready to heal somebody on the Sabbath, they looked at that and they were like, ah, you can't heal. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I can't give life. <laughs> You're telling me, the God of the universe who gave you the rule to begin with, that I can't heal this person because it's Sabbath and you've written new rule books that you think I have to follow. What a joke. So what does Jesus do? He has the guy, as they are watching him, waiting for him to mess up the Sabbath, he looks him in the eyes, he has the guy stand up, he holds out his hand, and he heals him in front of them. And they leave to conspire to kill him. This is where Jesus speaks into that and says, you do not put new wine into old wineskins. It'll break it. And you'll ruin all of it. It'll all be spilled all over the ground. And you won't have any control over it anymore. <clears throat> I go into all of that for you because if you are to be Bible readers... This is actually something that the New Testament church struggled with a lot. You'll see a lot of references to people who want to follow the old law and them talking about a new law that is grace. The new covenant that God gave us is Jesus, his sacrifice for us, his love for us. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappears not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen from the law shall be removed until everything is accomplished. So he's saying the law doesn't go away. But that's the place where he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He's like, I'm the fulfillment of the law. This is who I am. Now, what I don't want you to be and what I don't want me to be is the thing that Jesus is confronting in this passage. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want my heart to get cold. I don't want to worship the things that I shouldn't. I don't want to be pouring new wine into old wineskins. So let me give you four quick steps on how to be a Pharisee, all right? So hopefully you can avoid it. You can walk the other direction. Step one, you really want to be a Pharisee? Worship the letter of the law and forget the spirit of the law. You walk into a pool, every pool I've ever seen has a list of rules that sits somewhere. Uh, but, but that isn't the point of the pool, right? What's the point of a pool? Swim. Go on the dive. People built diving boards for you to go off of and slides for you to be there. And there's, like, the whole point is just to enjoy the pool, right? There are some restrictions there because they don't want people to die and they don't want people to be annoying. And that's pretty much what the rules are about, Okay. But if you walked in and the only thing that you could obsess on was the rules and adding to the rules and memorizing the rules and convincing other people how important those rules were, at some point, I hope somebody would walk up to you and be like, dude, get in the pool. It's like, enjoy the pool. Go off the diving boards. Hold your breath for a while. Like this, 
That is what it's supposed to be in this. And I think one of the ways that we become a Pharisee is we begin to worship the letter of the law and completely forget the spirit of what it was given. God has given us some principles that he wants us to live by. And all of those have a beautiful spirit that sits behind them. The second one would be this. Create, you want to be a Pharisee? Create laws where God leaves people to be free and ruthlessly judge them by that standard. So in other words, where God actually has freedom, you create laws that restrict people and then judge them according to those. Uh, Christians have been guilty of that for a long time, to be like, I don't think God's laws are clear enough. Let me add my own voice to that. (laughs) And then we take two more steps into that and judge people by the standard that we're using in that. That's not what we're called to do. Jesus confronts that directly in Matthew 23, 4, when he's talking to the Pharisees and says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Third, believe that your behavior earns you something. In the kingdom of God, our behaviors, how we respond to him, those are just a response to his love. If you think that because you spent 10 minutes in prayer this morning, or if you, know, if you read your Bible six days in a row, that you have some special place in heaven, <laughs> like, oh man, you guys, you're worshiping some form of morality. You have been saved by grace through faith so that you can't boast because you didn't do anything. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that did it for you. And so if you spent more time in your Bible than me this week, good. Good between you and Jesus. Good for you. That doesn't make you holier than, anyone, than everyone else in this room. And if it starts to increase pride in you, resentment for other people, if you start minimizing other people before that, you're on your path to becoming a Pharisee. And the fourth, allow your expectations to determine how God must move, act, or behave. You guys, in this passage, Jesus heals someone in front of them and they can't see it. These, the, the Pharisees in this passage have memorized more Scripture than anybody in this room will ever accomplish, I promise. They knew the Torah backwards and forwards, and yet they were standing in front of the prophesied Messiah and couldn't see him. Here's my concern for us. Let me just cut right to the heart of the lesson, okay? I think that we all very often expect God to move in specific ways because he has And then much like my cute, beautiful little new puppy, we learn the system and we begin to game it. So you have an intimate, beautiful moment with the Lord through worship music. You hear some song that was written and you're like, oh man, I resonate with that. And actually communicates a deep spiritual truth for you. Let me give you an example. Like let's say that you're struggling with shame. You know, you feel ashamed about thoughts or behaviors or an addiction or whatever it is. And this song just breaks through and God meets you in that. And there's conviction and you feel forgiveness. And you're like, man, I am walking on cloud nine today. Like I, I feel God's forgiveness and it is real to me. And you text some of your friends and you're like, you need to listen to this song. Um, here's the problem. That's great. God uses things like that. He uses mediums like songs. He uses times in prayer with him. He uses the word. He uses other people. He uses your small group. He uses places like this. He uses retreats. The problem is that we then begin to worship the thing. We begin to look at the song, and we begin to get lost in worship music, and we're like, oh, this, this is it. It's like, well, it isn't. It's actually a medium that God gave you in that. Or you go back 
to, to whatever book that you read, which was transformational for you a year ago, and you're like, why isn't God working the same way now? And it's because God isn't a vending machine. You don't put your quarter in and you get the same thing out every time. And you may recommend that book to someone else and they read it and they're like, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. I, I don't know if I'm feeling what you're feeling, <clears throat> but it's good. Because we begin to worship the medium rather than the one who gave it. I am guilty of that, you guys. And God has used so many things to break through to me. The number of authors, I mean, like C.S. Lewis, deeply meaningful to me. Brennan Manning, Ragamuffin Gospel, taught me about grace for the first time in my life. Frederick Buechner in this stage and Howard Thurman are incredibly important voices, authors in my life, um, and, and many others. But you guys, just because God used them to speak something to me in a given stage doesn't mean I can go back to that well and just expect that that's the way that God always speaks again and again and again and again, or I'm guilty of this. I'm allowing my expectations to determine how God must behave, and I'm not the one in the driver's seat. I want to be. Like it's so much easier that way, but that's just not the way it works. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Our old God is too new and big for you to think that you can get your hands around. If you think you can get your hands around him that way, he's too small. You've made God in your image, not the other way around. And I'm telling you that in your life, God wants to move and speak and work and act and encourage and rebuke and turn you into something that you aren't right now. He wants to do that this semester in you. And it's going to be in different ways than you will ever expect. And so if you limit him and you put your blinders on and be like, okay, I guess I'll read my Bible for five minutes in the morning because that's the way it worked two years ago, that might not be the way that it works now. I, he will speak through his word, but maybe your eyes need to be open in other ways. Maybe your ears need to be open in other ways. Elijah had a moment where the Lord told him he was going to speak and move. He goes up on a mountainside. It's in 1 Kings 19. And it says that a, a wind tore into the mountain, felt like it was tearing the mountain apart. It was that crazy of a wind, but God wasn't in the wind. And it said what followed the wind was an earthquake, just rattling this mountain that Elijah's on. And of course, I mean, like, can you imagine being on a mountain in an earthquake and being like, all right, God's like, this is God. God's getting ready to come. And it says God was not in the earthquake. And as Elijah stayed there, there was a forest fire that moved across the mountain that he was on. And it says, but God wasn't in the fire. And after all of that stuff had passed, what God was in was a whisper, was a quiet whisper that followed all of those things. This is not something, this is not a road Elijah had walked before. Jonah and the life of Jonah, there's this crazy and bizarre moment. I can't tell you his whole story, but there's just, there's a moment where he's frustrated and he's laying on his back and he's pouty and he's angry and there's a, there's a blaring sun and there's a leaf that's providing him shade. And God wants to get Jonah's attention. So it says that God <laughs> uses a worm to crawl up that plant and eat the stem off that leaf so it fell off and took his shade away. Okay? <laughs> Used a worm eating the stem off of a leaf to try to get Jonah's attention. 
How did God get Moses' attention? He's shepherding, and he looks up, and what? there's a burning bush that won't go out on the side of a mountain, and it gets Moses' attention. Those are so weird, you guys. I mean, I could keep going on weird ways that God has chosen to speak and get people's attention in Scripture, but they are all over the place. So if he can use, you know, a whisper and a worm and a fire, then I got to honestly tell you I don't know what he's going to do to try to get your attention in the next five months. But if your eyes are open, maybe you won't miss it. I hope that for me. I hope that for you, and I don't want to be so caught up in the way that he worked years ago. Again, I've been in campus ministry a long time, so it's easy for me to think that the way that God wants to bring revival in our ministry and on this campus with all the ministries are ways that I've seen before, and I feel like God's whispering to me, no, 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 no. These are going to be ways that surprise all of you. My Holy Spirit can't be manipulated or coerced and he will not be poured in to old objects that are brittle and ready to break. And that's not just true of ministries, it's true of people. So when our hearts are fresh and alive, that's where it can be. One last thing. In my marriage, um, there's structure that's needed to maintain relationship. Okay? So my wife and I have been married for a long time, 26 years. And, the, uh, and there's structures that's needed, you know, like we often have coffee in the mornings together. Uh, once everybody's off to school, we have a little bit of time, usually before I have to go to work. Um, most of the time during the semester, we have Friday night, date night rhythms where we're just out together if, if schedules will allow it and our, we don't have other stuff going on with kids. Um, we're out together on Friday nights, and there's other stuff that sits there too. These structures just help protect some times where my wife and I get to talk and listen and catch up about our week or how we're feeling. Sometimes we know a lot about what each other are doing, but not about how each other are doing within those things, okay? That allows us the time to do that. Now, I can, I can have a date night with my wife. Like, let's call that a law, okay? So I establish this law where I look at that and I say, it's a rule. We do this every Friday night. That doesn't mean I'm doing it right, okay? I can show up with a really crappy attitude or with a, be, as a really selfish human and have my own blinders on and not ask her any questions about herself. Just because we do it doesn't mean that it helps our relationship. You with me? You with me? And so in that, does showing up matter? Yeah, because not showing up to date night would matter, okay? <laughs> like that, that would be problematic. But it's not just showing up, it's how you show up. I, honestly, I think I got that on the screen, actually, and that's an important one for tonight. It's not just showing up, it's how you show up. You guys showed up tonight, awesome, but how did you show up? With hearts ready and open to receive? You show up to the retreat, awesome, but are you ready to let your world be rocked about the way the gospel might be spoken through you in the next year? You show up to your small group, great, you showed up. That is step one, and without doing that, you can't, like, like there's nothing else, all right? Showing up is a big step. But how do you show up? Do you show up ready to realize that there's other people there that may actually not answer you honestly when you say, hey, how are you doing, unless you lean in and say, no, 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 no. How are you really, though, right now? How can I really pray for you? What are we really doing here together? I want to be these kind of people, 
who don't just show up, but pay attention to how we show up, who don't just expect the old structures to work again, but actually expect Jesus to break a few of them because he wants to do something new and crazy and wild because he's an old God who's seen things that you and I haven't seen before. I just want you to know that I think God's ready to wreck you and me and us. And I don't want to be so expectant in the way that he's moved in the past that I actually become the barrier to him getting ready to do it again. Let's pray. Jesus, break the old things that we have held too sacred that actually aren't your law. They're just laws that we've written on top of your law. And I pray that you would move, Holy Spirit. You are within the hearts of your people. You're here. Uh, you're doing new things. You're creating new life. You're reviving what was dead into something different. And I pray that you just continue to do that work. God, thank you for the picture of that we get to experience together in baptism tonight. Thank you for the, the hundreds of stories of that that already exist that are in this room. Lives you transform, people you want uh, to take to your Father's house with you. So we love you, God, grateful for you, and we come in the name of your grace tonight. Amen. encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.